Today on the show, we're joined by Orit Peleg, Associate Professor at the University of Colorado Boulder and external faculty at the Santa Fe Institute. Now, Orit's been on the show before and she's talked about bees and how bees work as a complex system. In this episode, we are going to stay in the animal kingdom. We're going to talk about fireflies. Specifically, we're going to talk about how thousands of fireflies over very significant areas can synchronize their flashing in the night sky. Now, how do they do this? They are a complex system of individual agents. How do they learn to synchronize together? So today you're going to hear about Orit's work. She goes out and actually observes how they do this and then tries to understand what the underlying mechanism is that they use for this synchronization. Now, why study this? Well, there are many ways we can tackle complex systems. Some of us build agent-based models of systems. Some of us go and look at the economy. Some of us study cities and try and understand how they work. And what Arit is doing here is she's looking at this natural system. And by understanding how these agents synchronize with one another, she's wondering, can we take the lessons from that and use it in different applications? So, for example, imagine we're trying to program a swarm of small robots to go and lift something. Well, that's a synchronization problem. Traditionally, we'd have programmed each of those robots and told them what to do. But if we can take the learnings from the fireflies, we can actually give that learnings to our swarm of robots so they can work out how they can synchronize together and lift something. So with all that in mind, here is Ori. This is Simplifying Complexity, a podcast where we explore the underlying principles of complex systems. Systems that seem to defy our rational view of the world, like economies, ecologies, or even you or me. I'm forensic engineer Sean Brady, and I'll be your host. All right, Dilag, welcome back on the show. Good to be back. We talked about honeybees the last time and how honeybees self-organize. Today, we're going to talk about how fireflies synchronize. Before we do, I'd love to know how you got into this really interesting work. So I got exposed to that phenomenon as an undergrad student in one of the physics classes I took. It was There was a section about dynamical systems, and we used a textbook about dynamical systems and chaos uh, written by Professor Steven Strauss. He's a mathematician from Cornell University. And in addition to all the amazing work that he does in mathematics, he's also a very good science communicator. And that textbook had ample examples of beautiful, relatable analogies of these hardcore mathematical models that are designed to explain how electrons synchronize inside a superconductor, but also fireflies that flash in synchronization. It was very relatable. Like I really couldn't stop thinking about that. It sounded beautiful and I looked it up. And that problem has stayed somewhat dormant at the back of my head until I opened up my own lab when I was thinking about exciting problems that we can work on as a lab and fireflies it came up again. So that's kind of how it all started and developed quite a lot since then. So your research into this has got a significant amount of field work where you actually go out and try and capture data on fireflies. So probably start with where do you do that before we talk about how you do it? 
Yeah, so ideally we do this in a place that has lots of fireflies and we can somehow also assess when and where they're going to emerge. So a good compromise or a good place to do that is national parks. There's a lot of tourists there usually, but at the same time, they usually have really helpful park service entomologists that are estimating when and where these insects will emerge. So examples of a few spots, uh, field sites that we work at, the Smoky Mountains National Park in Tennessee and also Congaree National Park in South Carolina. Both of these places have, first of all, amazing staff and also really beautiful firefly swarms. When I was looking at your paper on this, you sort of forget that you can't just turn up and expect this to happen. You have to know when it's going to happen. You have to collect a little bit of intelligence and turn up in the right place at the right time. Exactly, yeah. So fireflies are not the most convenient organism to work with in that sense. They only exist as flashing adults for about two weeks out of the entire year, sometimes two years. So you have to be at the right time and also at the right place to really find them. They only flash a couple of hours every night. So it's a very short duration of their mating season when they flash. There's definitely a lot of time pressure and stress associated with, with doing this field work. Let's get a little bit of background on before we get to the data collection, but a bit of background on why do they do this? So it's only the males that do this. Yes, most of the uh, synchronous fireflies we know of are, occur when the males are flashing and synchronizing. Why they do this is actually there's an ongoing debate. There seems to be some consensus that it relates to biological fitness and reproductive success. But answering that question would require multi-year surveys of the same populations and connecting the synchronization to the population sizes. That's a big picture. I can dive into more specifics. You say in the paper that it's quite interesting, but the confusion seems to come about with the fact that if the males are trying to distinguish themselves from one another for mating, why are they insisting on synchronizing with one another and being the same? That seems to be where the confusion about it is. It's very counterintuitive and it poses new interesting questions about individuality within a swarm and whether being confirmative with the rest of the swarm or being more individual how does that relate to reproductive success? These are all things that I think are fascinating and we don't really know about. So you've got these males and they're, they're up in the trees, aren't they? The females are on the ground? Yeah, so the females are stationary on the ground with the fireflies that we work with. And the males are no, not necessarily on trees, but just flying around about one meter above the ground. And they move, so of course they fly, so there's some kind of mixing happening there. And the females are more stationary and close to the ground. They're actually much harder to find. In, at least for the swarms that we work with. The key thing you're looking at is the synchronization. So what are they synchronizing? They're synchronizing the flashing. So tell us a little bit about the flashing and the synchronization that you see. One of the species that we work with, Photonus carolinas, they flash in bursts. A particular male would flash a few times, on off, on off, and then go quiet for a while. And then again, on off, on off, and go quiet for a while. That's what it seems to be doing as an individual. As a swarm, they they kind of conserve these bursts. So the majority of the males that we have in our field of view would flash on off, on off for a few seconds and then go quiet for something like eight seconds and then again start to burst together and go quiet and so on for a couple of hours every night. And this happens with an enormous number of fireflies over a huge distance. Oh yeah, that was the most surprising thing that I, at least I found surprising when I was there. Yes, thousands of individuals that we can at least capture in our field of view of the cameras 
but we're only capturing a small fraction of the entire swarm that spans miles over miles over miles. And in the Smoky Mountains with Sputanus Carolinas, we really just didn't even find the end of the swarm. It's a ginormous swarm. And they're keeping the synchronization up over miles. Yeah, so they definitely seem to be able to transmit those onset of the burst. Sometimes they're not completely synchronized over miles, but there's this wave that starts at a certain position. There's going to be a few males that start to burst, and then males that are next to them will start to burst and next to them. So there's this wave of the start of the burst. That's one of the most beautiful phenomena at really, really high densities if you stand in the middle of this forest, you can see the wave coming to you and passes you. And we can even measure the speed of propagation of that wavefront. So talk about how you collect your data. So you go out to this, you know what's happening. It's going to happen for a couple of hours. How do you measure it? We bring with us cameras. And these days, actually, we don't need really sophisticated cameras, high-end. We can even use off-the-shelf, fairly simple GoPros. Sometimes even with our smartphones, with the newer devices, we can even capture firefly flashes and we bring usually a pair of cameras or several pairs of cameras and the reason we use pairs of cameras is that we want to have stereo vision to be able to reconstruct not just when the flashes occur but where they occurred so we can estimate the distance of the flashes from the camera and get a three-dimensional reconstruction of the swarm of when and where the flashes occur the reason we do this is because it's important for mathematical models. As I mentioned in the previous episode, in agent-based models and these kind of distributed systems of insect swarms, communication is local. And it's important to know the distance between individuals when they are communicating. And we can only know that if we have their three-dimensional positions in space. That's their main reason for using stereo vision. So you're able to capture these waves of synchronization in 3D, in time, in space, and then that becomes the basis for your analysis of that data. Yes, in one of our experiments. In other experiments, we bring in tents, we bring in LEDs to talk to the fireflies and a bunch of other things, but that's the majority. Talk about the tent. So the tent idea came along because of the size of the swarm. So we can only capture a very small part of the swarm. And if you want to understand how these insects talk to each other, communicate with each other, it's going to be challenging to do in these natural conditions because we don't know how many individuals we have. We have new individuals that come into the field and existing individuals that leave our field of view. So there is all these uncertainty about working with just a portion of the swarm. And with the more controlled environment, which is really just a black tent that we bring with us to the field, we're able to catch fireflies, identify their species and sex, and then we know exactly how many individuals how many males, and so on. And we don't lose track of them. They stay in the same environment and we can record them over several hours. That's the main reason for using that more controlled environment. And we're going to talk about that in a few minutes when we talk about the results and what you meant by that. So before we get into the mechanisms or your hypotheses of the mechanisms and how they get organized enough to become synchronized, how did people in the past believe this happened? And I believe there's some crazy theories and then some slightly more sensible theories. Yeah. So as far as you go in the past, the level of crazy increases. The original sighting of synchronous fireflies that were reported in Southeast Asia were actually at the banks of a river. And people who were using that river for transportation 
were actually using the fireflies as a landmark. So it's a well-known thing. But when it was reported to the scientific community, people dismissed it as a just a side effect of maybe the person who is on the boat, either the water level going up and down, maybe changes the occlusion, that the line of sight of the fireflies through the trees to that person. Maybe another idea was that this person is maybe blinking and because of the blinking, then it seems like the fireflies are flashing at the same on-off synchronous way. So it was too good to be true and very unbelievable in that sense. But since then, more rigorous studies of synchronous fireflies were done in the last 50 years or so and really measured quantitatively their synchronization and showed that this is not just an illusion. The fireflies are actually synchronizing their flashes. And there's a few hypotheses and models that explain how fireflies synchronize their flashes. And I don't know if you wanted to get into that right now, but one of the most classical models of firefly synchronization is usually referred to as the Kuromoto model. And it kind of goes into the mechanism of how fireflies synchronize with each other. And the idea is that each individual firefly can be described as an oscillator. It's doing some periodic function. This is something that happens around us all the time. People clap, for example, we walk. That's a periodic function. And the firefly does the same thing. It's flashing on and off forever in this loop of a periodic function. And what happens? They just get in sync. Was that the theory? Exactly, yeah. So then when you take two agents that perform this periodic function and you add some kind of coupling between them, coupling can be many different things. It can be physical coupling. It can be social coupling. But as soon as you add a little bit of that coupling in the sense that one individual can perceive what the other one is doing and try to get closer to where it is in that period, that seems to be enough to explain emergent synchronization on a global scale. So not just explains it for two individuals, but also on the global of an agent-based simulation with 10,000 individuals. And is that hypothesis valid? What's the belief on it? What's the position on it at the moment? Yeah, so I think it's an active field of research, especially now when we have more quantitative data on what fireflies actually do. It was very hard to get that data previously, but now with the advent of technology and analysis tools, we can see what the fireflies are really doing and we can do experiments with many individuals. We can do experiments with less individuals, with just one individual. And we actually tested the hypothesis that an individual firefly is producing periodic function, periodic flashing. So we take one firefly and you can demonstrate that it is that oscillating. That's what we were hoping to see. The mathematical models that we know sort of set a prior in our head that that is what I was expecting to see. But uh, we found something a little bit surprising. It's true for the species of fireflies that we work with. So we don't know if that's a more universal thing. But for Times Carolinas in the Smoky Mountains, we say that when we take individual fireflies, put them in the tent alone, they don't behave periodically. They actually have a very wide distribution of periods that they sample from, apparently. So it's not random, but they just have different periods that they work to, basically. Yeah, so an individual would also have some variability in the period. So it seems like, you know, you can have an individual that flashes and then waits two seconds between the next burst or waits 10 seconds or 50 seconds. It really varies a lot and well beyond what we would consider small level of noise around some periodic function. Does that mean or it, that the hypothesis that they all have the same oscillating function and then they just synchronize the functions and that's where it comes from? So that would be a piece of evidence that would 
not be consistent with that hypothesis? We, not with the classical model. And again, it's only true for one species of fireflies that we work with. But yes, so that basically tells us that we need to go back to the whiteboard and think about how to change these classical models to be able to conceptualize and encapsulate what we know the fireflies do, which is not a periodic behavior as individuals. So let's stay with the tent. So you primarily have the tent so that, well, I suppose I'm asking here, it looked like you primarily had the tent so that you could control the number of fireflies you put in that tent at any one time the sex of the fireflies are in that one tent, then you could increase the numbers of fireflies and see how their behavior changed. Is that correct? That's exactly it, yes. And what we saw is that while an individual firefly is not behaving in a periodic way, as we increase the number of fireflies, it becomes a little bit more periodic for five fireflies, a little bit better for 10 fireflies. I think around 15 or 20 is where we're starting to see the same behavior we're seeing outside, which is very periodic. So there is a clear period for the burst duration and the quiet part, which is about 12 seconds. Is that the same pattern you see? So do you get the same pattern in the tent as you get outside? Yeah, we see the burst. So the males flash a couple of times on off, on off together and then quiet for a while. And they seem to at least reproduce that burst structure that we're seeing outside. And the pattern, what about the timing? Is the timing different? The males that are inside the tent are visually disconnected from the rest of the fireflies outside, they're not going to be synchronized with them. Or if yes, it's probably just by chance, hopefully. <laughs> Is there like a global timing and pattern for these fireflies that's consistent? Or is it that once you get above 15, which is an incredibly small number, once you get above 15, you get a pattern for that group itself? Yeah, so the period and the timing of the global characteristic of that signal remains the same inside the tent and also outside the tent, but they're not aligned. So they can be shifted relative to each other in the phase. So it could be that fireflies in the tent are inside the burst, so they're flashing, but the fireflies outside are not. And that's just because we explicitly block their field of vision, so they're visually disconnected from the rest of the swarm, and this is why they're not communicating with them and they're not synchronized with them. So they're not synchronized, it makes sense, but the pattern is the same. It's just not in sync with the outside pattern. So are you saying that once we get more than 15 fireflies together and they can all see each other, you get the same pattern? Yes. Which is incredible given that the pattern of an individual firefly, I'm not going to quite say it's random, but it's a lot more random than that. Yeah, the idea of the collective periodicity being an emergent property only happens above a certain number of individuals is new and we're very excited about it. We're trying to uh, come up with new mathematical models that would help us understand it better and explain that emergent uh, periodicity. And how far have you got down that? Because I know this is a work in progress. Yeah, so this is a very much work in progress. We have a paper preprint online. It turns out that there's another classical set of models that were originally designed to explain how neurons communicate with each other. It's termed integrate and fire. Based on what the neurons do, they integrate electrical signal and they fire back. And it turns out that when we use this classical model with a small extension that allows for the behavioral variability of individual fireflies, we can reproduce that emergent collective periodicity. It's exciting because we think we found a good model to reproduce that behavior and better understand it. And it's also exciting because it somewhat makes a 
an interesting connection to other biological systems that synchronize like neurons. It's a model that was designed for neurons and their behavior. And is it an agent-based model? It's considered to be an agent-based model. You can think of a neuron as an agent that is connected locally to other individuals. With neurons, it can also be a little bit more complicated. They can have non-local interactions. But as a first approximation, you can definitely think about it as an agent voice. And at the risk of geeking out completely here, but what are the interactions that you design between the fireflies? Is that a very simple set of interactions like you had with the bees or is it much more complex? I would say it's simple. So it's following the lines of the integrated fire model. In that model, the local interactions are if I'm a neuron and I have connections to other neurons or if I'm a firefly, I can see other fireflies flash. That number of flashes that I see is going to increase an internal counter that I have or capacitor if I'm a neuron until it reaches the threshold of maximum capacity or maximum counts for number of flashes. And then once it did, then I'm going to flash or I'm going to produce an electrical signal. And that's it. So it's very simple, yet it's enough to capture the emergent periodicity of the collective. And does that mean that there's something biological going on in the fireflies that is sort of capping out that, that is giving you this pattern when they're all together, that's giving you this emergent pattern? Yeah, so there's some kind of abstract or non-abstract counter that they have internally that sets off the flashing behavior once they saw enough flashes. We really don't know. That's purely speculative. All we know it's, is that the prediction of this model are in agreement with our behavioral experiments. But to really answer that question, we would have to look inside the brain of the fireflies and look for that mechanism, which is hard to do, but maybe not impossible. Just for the last few minutes here, broaden this out a little bit. We see synchronization, again, go back to your complex systems. We see this type of synchronization in other living systems and other non-living systems as well. So can you talk about both of those? So I already mentioned neurons. That's another common living system where synchronization can occur. It actually has some bad side effects like epilepsy, sometimes associated with neuron synchronization, unwanted neuron synchronization. The cells in our heart that pump our blood throughout our body are also contracting in synchrony, which allows the entire heart to contract and pump blood. It seems like synchronization is pretty prevalent in living systems, but also in non-living systems. So I think I already briefly mentioned electrons in a superconductor. The reason a superconductor has low friction in a sense for current is deeply related to the fact that electrons synchronize their periodic motion along the axis of the current. So that's one example. There's another classical example that is more mechanical. So if you have two pendulum clocks on the wall, or if you have a slightly more modern, say, I don't know, like metronomes on a table, they're not really connected to each other. They're only connected to each other through the substance on which they stand or hang. But that provides just enough mechanical coupling to get them to synchronize. So you can do really simple experiments with metronomes on a table. And as long as the table is a little bit wobbly, after a while, these metronomes would synchronize, even though they start non-synchronized, which is really fun to watch. Going back to this concept of we would expect intuitively that those metronomes would not be able to why would they even want to almost is the thinking, but we see this sort of, they are able to self-organize themselves into synchronized behavior. So what does this tell us? If we want to go out and design systems that synchronize, again, 
back to this concept of without having a central controller to dictate how that's going to happen. What do we learn from this sort of work? All right. Yeah. So going back to technology that is distributed, like in swarm robotics, there's quite a lot of excitement about getting the robots to synchronize also in a distributed way. Imagine that you have a group of robots that need to perform collective transportation, which is a fancy term for carrying a large object, a heavy object together. So of course, the whole process will tend to work better when they're all pushing at the same time, or at least not fighting against each other in terms of when and where they push. So if they had this internal clock where they were synchronized, then they would be able to achieve that. But learning from the fireflies that had, again, eons of evolution to perfect some of these processes could be applicable for systems like swarm robotics and creating synchronization in a distributed way there. Yeah, so rather than saying you all have a clock, you're all there's a master clock, there's one clock in control, and at this time of the clock, you're all going to push. You're basically saying get around that thing to push it, and when you're synchronized, start pushing it. Exactly. Which is an incredible sort of application of something, as you say, that we've seen in nature for a very long time. All right, Vilek, thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Simplifying Complexity, where we look at the key concepts of complexity science with expert minds from across the world. Concepts like emergence, self-organization, adaptation, networks, scaling, tipping points, and much more. This podcast was produced by Brady Haywood and Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. I'm Sean Brady, and I'll see you in our next episode.